this morning, we're going to be talking about prayer. How many of us actually struggle with prayer? Okay. I see a food. Don't struggle with prayer, so I'll come and have a chat with you after to see what the secrets are. Because I think, you know, deep down, we all have this struggle um, with prayer. And basically, prayer, when we think about it, prayer is communication with God, isn't it? It's us talking with God. Okay? But it's not just one way. God actually talks to us as well. Isn't that good news? That God actually talks to us. But that takes time, doesn't it? It takes time. And we live in a, in a society where we don't have time. You know, we're so rushed off our feet with doing this, that, and the other, uh, as well as being on our phones, that we don't actually have time to pray and to hear from God. And yet prayer is so, so important to the Christian life, isn't it? It's the lifeline of being a Christian. There's a couple of quotes I just want to begin with here. Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. We have to breathe to live, don't we? And it's like that with God. You know, we need to pray in order for our relationship to be alive and well. Another quote was from Corey Ten Boom, who says, Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? I quite like that. You know, what is driving our Christian life? I would suggest that prayer should be driving our Christian life. I mean, Rory spoke well last time about us being in the Word, about delighting in the Word of God. And we need to do that as well, don't we? If we're not feeding on God through the Word, then we're going to be malnourished Christians. And there are many skeletal Christians out, out there. And dare I say it, some of us may be skeletal because we're not feeding on the Word of God. And we're not communing with God in prayer. So prayer is very very important. We're going to be looking at Psalm 5 today. So if you want to turn to Psalm 5, and, you know, David was very much a man of prayer. He sought God because, because David was a man who had many enemies, you know, verbal enemies and physical enemies around him all the time. And, and in fact, you'd You'd have to ask the question, did actually David have, have any friends? <laughs> because often he's talking about enemies. And he has plenty of enemies. And we have enemies as well. And we'll look at some of those in a bit. But like with Bible reading and prayer and many other things, evangelism, and it's interesting that we find all these things difficult as Christians, and yet they should be the backbone of who we are as Christians, reading the word, being in prayer, sharing our faith. And yet we struggle with many of these things. And I struggle. So I'm not here saying, you know, I have all the answers to what it means to be a good man of prayer. In fact, Spurgeon says about evangelism, he says, 
evangelism is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. And I feel like that this morning. I feel a bit of a beggar, you know, trying to teach this church about prayer because I haven't got all the answers. But God's word does have all the answers, which is why we're looking at it this morning. And one of the things, one of the key ingredients for a Christian, no matter whether it's prayer or Bible reading or sharing our faith, one of the things we need, and it should be on the screen, the first slide, and it's a Hebrew word, and it's a good Hebrew word, and we're going to try and pronounce it, and it's a word chutzpah. Who can say chutzpah? Okay, don't, don't try and pronounce it ch, chutzpah, because it's not. It's chutzpah. And if you are a good Hebrew or good Jew, you would, you would try and pronounce it from the back of your throat. Literally, chutzpah. Can you do that? Chutzpah. Chutzpah. Don't spit on the person who's uh, sitting in front of you, please. But this chutzpah is this idea of dogged determination and persistence. This idea of not letting go. And there are many, many examples in Scripture when it comes to chutzpah. And I just want to share a couple of those before we get into Psalm 5, just as an introduction. And if you turn to Luke 11, in your Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke 11, and Jesus tells a parable of the persistent friend. And he's just taught them about how to pray, the Lord's Prayer. And then he goes on from that and says in verse 5, chapter 11, Luke, he says, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Do you notice the word persistence there? He's persistent. He don't just give up after the first ask. He keeps going. But look what Jesus says in verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And literally, you keep asking. You keep seeking. You keep knocking. It's not just a, a once knock, and then you forget it. But we keep, we persist. Go to Luke 18. That's just a few chapters on, Luke 18. And we have another parable of the persistent widow. From verse 1, it says, He spoke another parable, that men always ought to pray and not to lose heart. Saying, there was a certain city, in a certain city, a judge 
who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said in himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual, continual coming she wearies me. The Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Interesting word, faith, isn't it? Sometimes we think it's just an intellectual assent to a few beliefs. But the word could be faithfulness. It could be this idea of going on, keeping on, this persistence, this dogged, dogged determination. Will God really find this when he returns to the earth? That we're keeping on? And there's a, one of my favorite characters of the Old Testament, Caleb. Remember Joshua and Caleb? They go into the promised land. It says Caleb... Several times in Joshua 14, Caleb was a man who wholly followed the Lord. He followed the Lord wholeheartedly. He didn't waver. And in Numbers 14, it says about Caleb is that he had a different spirit. He had a different spirit. Guess what, guys? We have the Holy Spirit within us, who enables us to have this chutzpah, who enables us to have this determination and persistence. No wonder the writer to the Hebrews says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. There's a boldness about chutzpah, as well as determination and persistence. And in fact, it's been said of, of Martin Luther that to hear him pray was actually an experience in theology. It was said that he began to pray with such humility that he could be pitied, only to proceed with such boldness before God that the human hearer would fear for him. So he goes from humility to boldness. And I believe that we need this in prayer. We need to come in humility because of our need. But we also need to come boldness, in boldness. Just like David did, just like Luther did. Because God wants to hear us and God wants to answer us. And sometimes we're too timid in our prayers you know, I've been to Africa several times, and the Africans pray just like we don't pray. You know, they pray with such a passion and a fervency that God wants to meet with them, and God wants to hear them. And so we come to Psalm 5, and let's hear the words of David and see if you can hear 
the chutzpah, the determination to take a hold of God. And he says in verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction, and their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. And let also those who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. And with favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Hallelujah. So the point one is prayer is focused. Prayer is intentional and prayer is expectant. So in these first three verses, David is focusing on God as his king, as his Lord. His focus is the Lord. How often do we come to God in prayer and yet we don't actually come to God? We're so focused on our problems and our, the issues that are going on in our life that our prayers actually go no further than the ceiling because our focus isn't God. And I, I speak from experience that that's, that's, that's me most of the time, <laughs> a lot of the time, you know. My, my, my prayers aren't getting to God because my focus isn't God, my focus is the problem. And time and time again throughout this psalm, he, his focus is God. Look at verse 4. For you are not a God. In verse 7. But as for me, I will come into your house, your mercy, in fear of you. It's your holy temple. It's your righteousness. It's your way, verse 8. Verse 11. I trust in you. Because you defend them. Joyful in you, verse 11 there. For you, Lord, and with favour, you, Lord. You see, the emphasis is God throughout the psalm. And our focus has to be God. Secondly, David uses words in prayer. That may be very basic, but God wants to hear 
our voice. He wants to hear our words. And it's not the eloquence of our words. It's not even about the length of our prayers. It's not even about being theologically correct in our praying. God wants to hear our hearts. And I believe there are many of us who don't like praying. We don't even like praying out loud because we're afraid that we might get it wrong. We might say something wrong or that's incorrect or, you know, people might look at us differently if we say this. But when we come to God, we're not praying to each other in prayer. We're praying to God and God wants to hear our words. He wants to hear our hearts. But we need to be careful that, I mean, Jesus gave the warning in Matthew 6. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask him. You know, I know what you know, Nathaniel wants sometimes, my boy who's seven, but it's good for him to come and ask, isn't it? It's good for me to hear him ask. And God's like that. He likes to hear us asking him and speaking to him. And then David goes on to talk about meditation. He says, consider my meditation. That's an interesting word, meditation, isn't it? Sometimes we think of, you know, these Eastern religions who, who meditate without saying anything. And it can be that. I mean, the Hebrew word is hagig, which can be a whisper. It can be this musing or murmuring or even groaning. And to, I don't know about you, but sometimes we're like that, aren't we? Sometimes we don't actually know how to pray or what to pray, and, and yet there's something going on within us, in our souls, isn't there? As we go along and we're sort of murmuring and, you know, not actually knowing how to pray. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this, I believe, in, in Romans 8. And Romans 8 is, is the chapter about living life in the Spirit. And the Apostle says... Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, which are too deep for words. The Spirit takes over. And sometimes, I mean, there are some commentators who says that can overflow into speaking in tongues even. That the, you know, that our the gift of tongues can take over to help us in our, in our praying. And I've been in that situation many times where, you know, you just begin to speak in tongues because you don't necessarily know how to pray or what to pray. And that can be a help. That can be a help. But there's something which just isn't words or even groaning inside. It's a crying out. Because look what he says in verse 2. Give heed to the voice of my cry. We can cry out in prayer. Again, sometimes we can be too timid and too polite, and, and yet God wants to, you know, he's given us emotion for a reason. 
you know, so that we cry out to God. And David did that. Jesus did that. In Hebrews 5, it talks about Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Loud cries and tears. We can do that. Let's not be ashamed when we come in prayer to cry out aloud and to even shed the tear that we need to shed as we come to God in prayer. As we think about the people in Ukraine right now, you know, we need to be crying out to God to meet these people, even with tears, you know, even with tears. And time and time again throughout the Psalms, David cries out to the Lord to deliver him. Look at some of the things he says. He says, do not hide your face from me. Do not forsake me, Lord. Do not be silent to me. Deliver me. Lord, how long will you look on? Stir up yourself and vindicate me, he says in some of the other Psalms. That takes boldness. That takes tenacity to say those things to God. And again, in my African experience, you know, those people do those things. They get on their hands and knees and they cry out to God with such fervency and passion. Let's, be, let's not be afraid to do that. Let's look at verse 3. He says, My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. How many of us are morning people? Not many, is there? And yet morning's a wonderful time, isn't it? If you get up early in the morning and you see the sun beginning to rise, it's quite, it's quite an experience, actually. Many, I mean, most of us see the sun setting, don't we? <laughs> but how many of us actually see the sun rising? And it's such an experience just getting up in the morning. And, uh, you know, many of the old missionaries and preachers testify about getting up early. Hudson Taylor was a, a guy who got up at 2 a.m., you know, because by the time he got to 6 a.m., you know, things were getting busy and, you know, the busyness of the day. But at 2 a.m., everyone's asleep. It's time with God. Another missionary, C.T. Studd, you know, was a 4 a.m. man. He would get up at 4 a.m. before duty started at 6 to spend that special time with God. Now, some of you are probably looking at me thinking, well, yeah, but we have young kids and, you know, we don't sleep well anyway. That long getting up at two and four o'clock. But there has to be a, an element within us where we, we take time to spend with God, where there is no distraction. And it says... In the morning, I will direct my prayer to you. I will direct it to you. Some versions, like the ESV, says, In the morning, I will prepare a sacrifice to you. And sometimes our prayers need to be sacrificial. You know, so often we want our Christianity to be 
on our terms. We want our Christianity to be, to be comfortable. And it takes sacrifice sometimes to do the things that we need to do in order to commune with God. And he prepares the sacrifice, it says, to God. The word can also mean to arrange, just like the priest would arrange the wood on the altar in the morning, at the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. The priest would, would get the pieces of wood and the other parts for the sacrifice and would lay them intentionally on the altar. Are we intentional in our prayers? Or do we just get up and pray whatever comes to mind? And I'm not saying there shouldn't be a spontaneity about our prayers. There should. There should be a spontaneity. But just because we prepare and are intentional about what we're going to pray about doesn't mean that spontaneity goes out the window. Because that doesn't have to be the case. We can be prepared and we can be spontaneous at the same time. So Spurgeon says about this verse, he says, I will arrange my prayer before thee and I will lay it upon the altar in the morning just as the priest lays out the morning sacrifice. Let's be deliberate and intentional about our prayers. Sometimes we can be a bit lazy, can't we? about these things. But sometimes we need to list things. We're going to pray about this and this and this today. And then because we do that, we can be expectant. Because David says at the end of verse 3, and I will look up to be expectant. Sometimes we pray and we just forget it. But do we pray and then come back to God and say, well, what's happened here? Because I've prayed, what's happened? Maybe, we're, you know, perhaps we don't expect things because we've been disappointed in the past. Maybe we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and God hasn't answered the way that we expected him to. And we become disappointed with a lack of answer to prayer. But God says, no, keep on keeping on. Kutzbah, keep on keeping on, persisting. Point two, prayer that focuses on God's holiness. So we need to address whom we're praying, remember who we're praying to. You know, God is a God who is holy, isn't he? He is a holy God. So verse 4 says about God, he's not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, and nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity, and you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Wow. Did we, did we know that God hates do we know that God shall destroy those who practice evil? Sometimes we don't think of God in those terms, do we? 
Sometimes we think of God as a God of love, which he is, but he's also a God who hates and abhors evil and sin. We sang this morning, didn't we? What a friend we have in Jesus. He is a friend, isn't he? He is a friend, but he's more than a friend. And the closer we get to God in prayer, the more we begin to understand his character. We begin to understand that he isn't just a friend. He isn't just, as some people would say today, the man upstairs. It's quite irreverent, actually. He is a holy God. And the closer we get to God, the more we realize that he, he is a holy God. Even Jesus himself in John 17, 11, the great high priestly prayer says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Let's remember the God whom we're coming to. Yes, chutzpah, yes, be bold, but not in a proud and arrogant manner. And David knew God's character, which is why he could, he could say these things here in verses 4 through to 6. Sin separates us from God. We need to remember that. But through Christ, we have been brought near. We have been brought near, but... In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it says, Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. And sometimes, maybe with us, God doesn't hear our prayers because we live our lives the way we want to live them, and then we come to God in prayer expecting him to hear us. And sometimes he doesn't. He decides not to hear us because of sinfulness. Let's not be flippant in our prayers. Not talking about sinlessness, you know, that we need to be sinless before God hears us. No, that's never going to happen on this side of eternity. But we need to be aware that God is a God who doesn't delight in sin and wickedness because he's a holy, holy God. It says, in the second part of verse 5, it says, you hate all workers of iniquity. Now, sometimes we hear the cliche that God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. And yet, there doesn't seem to be any d distinction here. It says, God hates all workers of iniquity. And sometimes we separate the sin from the sinner. And yet, it says here clearly that God puts them both together because it's the sin and the sinner that God is going to destroy ultimately in the end. And unless people repent and turn back to God, the outcome is going to be destruction, which is why we need to be urgent about our witness about bringing people into the kingdom because God doesn't delight in iniquity or wickedness. And in verse 6, it says, you shall destroy those who speak falsehood. So there are seven things that 
David lists in four, verses 4 to 6. Wickedness, evil, boastful, iniquity, falsehood, bloodthirsty, deceitful. And David was probably most of those things at some point in his life. But he was also a man. He was a man after God's own heart. And he recognized that God hated these things and he was quick to return to God who is holy. Let's look at verse 7 to, to 8. It says, But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy, and fear of you I will worship towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies, and make your way straight before my face. So point three, prayer that yearns for God's presence. You know, when we come to pray, there's a sense that we come into God's presence, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, we have God's presence, but when we come together, or when we pray, either individually or corporately, there's a sense that the presence of God is manifest as we pray. Have you been in those times, those meetings where we're praying together and you just have that sense of God's presence that you didn't have before you prayed? I mean, Rory was leading worship a couple of weeks ago and, I, and, and, and he just made time for, for God to move and I just stood there and I just felt an overwhelming sense of God's presence. We need to make time for that more and more. That God would just move amongst us as we worship and as we pray. That God would manifest himself to us. We all want that, don't we? We all want to sense God's presence, just like David did here. And God's presence was right there at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. And there are many who see Eden as, as like a, a temple setting where God dwells with man. And God desires to dwell with man. And David is saying here, I'm going to, in fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. And the temple hasn't even been built at, at this point. But he then goes on to say um, about God's house, I will come into your house, he says there in verse 7. So the idea of being in the house is to be in God's presence. In, in the New Living Translation, of verse 7, it says, because of your unfailing love, I can enter your house. You know, unfailing love is, this, is mercy, is hesed, is mercy, his loving kindness. And because of his mercy, we can enter into his presence. We can enter into his presence. That should... That should mean so much to us that we can enter into God's presence through Jesus. And it's because of his mercy. This was David's confidence in the multitude of your mercy. Not just mercy, but the multitude of your mercy I can enter in. 
And David had a fear of God, an, an awe um, that enabled him to have that confidence that he could enter God's presence. And in verse 8, he says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies, and make your way straight before my face. In a world where we have enemies, and the ultimate enemy is Satan himself, who prowls around trying to seek whom he may devour, we need to ask God to continually lead us and guide us. We need him to make our way straight. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we stay on the right path all the time. Many of you may know Pilgrim's Progress. You know, Christian gets on the road, but many times he's tempted to go off the road, and at times he does. And that's why we need to be asking God for him to lead us and to make his way straight before us. And we are in a, in a war. Did you realize that? Yes, there's a war going on right now between Russia and the... But do you know that for us Christians, we are on the battlefield. We are in a spiritual war. We need to realize that. This isn't a game that we're playing with Christianity. We have entered into the family of God, but we've also entered the battlefield. And we need to be asking God each and every day to lead us in his ways. I know I can be led off easily. We all can. But we need God to make his ways known to us. And time and time again through the Psalms, David says it. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths, he says in Psalm 25, verse 4. Let's desire God's leading. Let's desire his way in our lives. We all know Psalm 23 well, and he says about God, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, when we are on God's path, we have his presence with us, don't we, more and more. Do we, leave, do we lose God's presence when we sin, when we're not on his path? I don't believe we lose his presence, but I do believe we can quench or grieve the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to do that, do we? You don't grieve somebody or upset somebody you love. So let's be asking for God to, to teach us his ways, for him to lead us in his now, this is, this is where it gets a bit tricky because point four is that prayer that pulls no punches because David really gets serious about the enemies, doesn't he? And I want to look at verse 10 before we get, and then we'll go back to verse 9. But in verse 10, it says, Pronounce them, talking about his enemies, guilty, O God, 
let them fall by their own counsels and cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. This is what is known as an imprecatory prayer. And there are many of them throughout Scripture. To imprecate is to literally to invoke evil upon or to curse one's enemies. Now, hold on a moment. Jesus says, love your enemies. So, but this is Old Testament. No, it's not Old Testament. It's the Word of God. And so we need to get this balance of what it means to call a curse upon our enemies and to love our enemies. But let's look at a couple of scriptures. There's a couple of scriptures I think are on the screen. Psalm 35 says, reading from the ESV, it says, let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him and let him fall into it to his destruction. Wow. That's strong words, aren't they? I'm not sure any of us could pray that, could we? How about Psalm 139? We, we know the psalm, you know, that, that God knew us before we were, we were born in our mother's womb. But later on, from verse 19, he says this, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with a malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred, and I count them as my enemies. Wow. Again, strong words. But this isn't just Old Testament. The Apostle Paul and Jesus quotes the Psalms. So, for example, in Romans 11, talking about Israel, he says <clears throat> that God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And then he quotes David in verse 9. He says, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And he's quoting Psalm 69. And Psalm 69 is a psalm that references Jesus or points to Jesus. So Psalm 69 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, by the way, along with Psalm 22, both messianic and Psalm 69, verse 4, says, they hated me without cause. Jesus references that. 
Psalm 69.9, seal for my house has eaten me up. Jesus references that. And then later in verse 21, it says, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Again, a reference to Jesus. But look what it says in verse 24 of Psalm 69. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take a hold of them. These are not personal words of anger or words of vengeance. Jesus was never vindictive or vengeful. The onus is always back on God. God, you deal with the enemies. You deal with them. Because look what it says in verse 10 of our Psalm 5. It says, for they have rebelled against you. So even though these are David's enemies, ultimately, David says they've rebelled against you. That's the point, isn't it? All sin is sin against God. Saul persecutes the early church, doesn't he, before he becomes a Christian in Acts 9. And Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus and says to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And yet he's persecuting God's people. Because sin against God's people is sin against God himself. And God will repay those who sin against his people. It's God who takes the vengeance. You know, when we see injustice in this world, when we see children being abused and children being murdered, do we not want to see justice? Do we not want to see God deal with the enemies? You know, when we pray, your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done on earth, do you know we're praying, yes, for God's kingdom, righteous kingdom to come and rule and reign on this earth, but we're also calling God to bring judgment and justice upon the earth. Yes, we need to love and pray for our enemies. Can we love what Putin is doing to the Ukrainians right now? No, we can't. We cannot justify that action. And so put yourself in the place of a Ukrainian right now. I'm sure many of them are crying out to God, God, do something to these enemies of ours. It's not that they want to be hateful or vengeful or vindictive, but they want God to show up. And, you know, these prayers, these imprecatory prayers, are never from a, a position of dominance or triumphalism. It's always from a position of vulnerability and weakness, where the psalmist says, God, deal with these enemies. Ultimately, vengeance is mine, Romans 12, 19. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And then just back to verse 9. And the biggest enemy for most of us is what comes out of our mouths. Because verse 9, it says, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. 
their inward part is destruction and their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. And the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Romans 3.13. And in, in Romans 3, he says, all have sinned. This is a universal issue. This is a universal problem that we all have, that we all sin with our mouths. But we know the deeper issue is the heart, isn't it? Because Jesus says it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks is a heart issue. And one of the things he says here at the end of verse 9 is that they flatter with their tongue. Anyone here ever been flattered? <laughs> Somebody said something to you, you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd really take that on board, you know. But flattery ultimately leads us down the wrong path because flattery is, and his definition, is excessive and insincere praise. It's given especially to further one's own interests. Satan did that in the garden. He flattered Eve. He says, hey, Eve, you can, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. Flattery is deceitful. It's insincere. Let's be careful that we don't do that to people. Hey, John, you're a lovely guy. Hey, yeah, which he is. But if I'm doing it to further my own interests, forget it. <laughs> let's not do that. Let's not, let's not use our tongues to curse our brothers either because James is clearly says in James 3 that the tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquity. You know, we bless God and we curse our brother with it. You know, so when we come to pray, let's be careful that we're praying with a sincere heart and not with an unruly tongue. And finally, because time is running, prayer that ends in joy. It says, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you, for you, O Lord, will bless the righteous, and with favor you will surround him as with a shield. So David starts out, it seems like, in a lonely place, in a desperate place. And one commentator, Derek Kidner, says, David now breaks free of his loneliness he is no longer a man praying on his own, hemmed in by his foes, but is conscious of a whole company who can join him in praise. Because he says in verse 11, let all who rejoice put their trust in you. You know, when we trust in God, we can rejoice. When we know that God defends us, we can shout for joy. Hallelujah. It's not our circumstances You know, happiness comes with our circumstances. You know, we're, we're happy because this is going well. We're happy because this is going well. But not here. Joy isn't that. Joy is something that we can have all of the time. 
because it's not really our joy, it's his joy that he puts within us. Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 11, it's my joy that I leave with you, that your joy may be complete. It really comes from God, doesn't it? The joy that we have. But it should be the hallmark of Christians that we have joy in spite of what's going on around us. And finally, verse 12, you bless the righteous and with favour you surround him as with a shield. You know, even Satan knew that God surrounds his people as with a shield. He says about Job in Job 1.10, he says, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all he has on every side? It's this idea of encircling us with a shield, not just that shields us at the front, but shields us all around. That's God's favour, is that he protects his children. The enemies haven't gone, by the way, with David. But his confidence throughout the psalm has grown and grown to the point he can now say, yes, Lord, you surround the righteous with favour, as with a shield. He knows that God has heard. He knows that God protects. He knows that God's favour is on him. He knows God's presence and he knows that God will act justly. Does our prayer life bring us to that place of knowing? Does our prayer life bring us to that place of we're going to keep on keeping on? Because in a world that is so, or a country that is so becoming anti-Christian, we need to be people who hold on to God. We can so much put the emphasis on God is holding us. Yes, he is. Thank God he is. But if, if I was to put, put a rope out to save someone at sea, they need to hold on to the rope as much as I'm holding on to the rope. Are we holding on to God in this day and time, in our prayer life? Are we serious about God? I want to encourage us today to be serious about our Lord and our God, because he's serious about us. We started with the word chutzpah. Maybe that's a word you're going to take away today. I hope you do, because it's a word that encourages us to be persistent, to be fervent, to be passionate, to be bold with our God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we bless you and thank you for your word today. Father, we thank you that you do indeed keep a hold of us. That Father, we thank you that you've given us this wonderful thing called prayer that we may commune with you, Lord. Help us, Lord, as we go from this place, not to forget 
what's just been spoken about, that we would take a hold of these words, Lord, from the psalm, and that we would really be men and women of prayer in this time. Help us to be serious, Lord, about you. Encourage us, encourage us today, Lord, we pray, as we go from this place. Help us to be people who are on fire for the Lord, for you. In Jesus' name, amen.